0: Good morning, afternoon, evening. We have reached the end of another week. I am Emily Jane Fox here with my co-host Joe Hagen. Hi, Joe.
1: I'm exhausted.
0: We did it, barely.
1: Yeah. Why are you so tired?
0: What happened this week? They could have made you so tired.
1: Intake. Yeah, the news intake. It's been like the fire hose to the face uh, all week long with hurricanes social unrest, propaganda, lies, conspiracies. You know, i um, like a lot of people, you get to where you're on Twitter, your social media, you're looking at your news, and it becomes like a feedback loop of horror. And then you become numb, and you just need somebody to slap you in the face and remind you that this isn't all your life. I, I'm very depressed after this week. Well, I'm here to slap last you week, in week, I st- I Remember last week, I was like, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. This week was like the battering ram that sort of like uh, crushed the
0: tin can. That was by design, though. Like, yeah, the Democrats' message during the DNC was a moment of hope and a way to uplift you. And the message of the Republican National Convention is the exact opposite. It is they're coming for you. In your streets, white people, the Law and Order Party is here to save you from the social movements that are pushing progress in our streets. Uh, the, the coronavirus doesn't exist in this world. President Trump has done a remarkable job of pulling our country out of a pandemic, despite all evidence to the contrary. And our president is a man who is empathetic, kind, and father of the year, every year. That's the message yeah. that we've gotten this week. It's not, it's not uplifting. It is deeply delusional. But I'm I I hear you when you say that you wanted a slap in the face, and I'm going to give you one. Thank you. I am three hours behind you, so I woke up this morning. Sort of, I always wake up this morning. Sort of already through the day, it was six o'clock. It's is 9 o'clock on the East Coast, and Jared Kushner, the Fresh Prince of Colorama, had already done a series of interviews on Thursday morning. And what he said was he was going to call LeBron James today. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Now, the NBA's two teams in the NBA decided to, in protest, say that we are not going to play our games, which is a decision that on Wednesday night when they made the decision was Across the board, lauded and widely praised as a real inflection point, and you don't mm-hmm. have to care about sports to care about that story, and it has ramifications that are wide, widespread, and really important. And we can, we can. I want to go into all of that um, in the interview that they, that you and I do. But Jared Kushner said, "I'm going to call LeBron James, and I want to make this." Not an emotional thing, but I want to make this a practical conversation where we can talk about actual concrete solutions rather than the emotional argument that they're trying to make. And it's really nice that the NBA players have the ability to not go to work for one day. They're very fortunate. But we really need to solve this problem in a concrete way, which obviously has never been there's never been a more ironic statement than Jared Kushner sort of digging people for not having to work. Right. Because Jared Kushner's never had to work a day in his life. And it reminded me of a comment that Jared made in his first interview when he um, did, af- after he took off uh, office. That's exactly how it feels after he took his role in the West Wing. Um, and in the interview, it was with the Washington Post, and I believe it was like, two months into the administration. And Jared Kushner referred to the American people as his customers. And I remember reading it and being like, no, 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 we're not his customers. We're his bosses. That's not how this works. First of all, America is not a corporation, it's a country. And second of all, you have the power dynamics completely wrong. And part of it is because he's never had a boss who is not related to him either by blood or by marriage. So he doesn't truly understand what it's like to be responsible to anyone who's not related to him. But part of it is just a fundamental lack of empathy and a knee-jerk reaction to McKinsey eyes every problem that he sees rather than actually feel what people could be feeling. And this comment this morning struck me as so distinctly Jared. And Jared Kushner believes that he's going to be the one to de-escalate the social movement that we've been living through and problem solve like a fucking consultant. It was the most deranged read of the moment that we need Jared Kushner to sweep in and be the one to have a hard conversation with LeBron James that's going to deeply hit and and solve the racial injustice in our country it was such a wild way to see the world i had to mention it before we get into the rest of the conversation well i wouldn't
1: you love to be in on that phone call did you see no James i James wouldn't tweet i don't yesterday? want that phone call to happen he was like he's incredibly angry and passionate as he should be he was on the, all caps on twitter yesterday but and he's actually doing something mm. for the country he started a voting initiative lebron james did you know to get uh black people to the polls and to protect their right to vote i and meanwhile the lack of empathy that you're talking about is almost the only real core defining principle of the trump <laughs> campaign It's to not have empathy. It is to not connect people together. It is to divide, Mm -hmm. right? And his sort of like bloodless – and I'm talking about Jared – this sort of bloodless, you know, wooden toy that wishes he was a boy is just – he's a non-entity in the conversation of America. He's just a factotum with, you know, ambition. I mean there's nothing else there, right? We've discussed this in the past. He's infuriating. Let's talk about the Trump family as they have been seen this week at the RNC convention. You, you are our resident expert in some of the family dynamics of the Trump family.
0: I've taken a bullet for all of us.
1: Uh, thank you for doing that. You, you really have. It's a service. It's a public service. But you know the they were um the faces of this kind of uh, propaganda operation that we saw this week i mean any the, the the moments after any of these convention nights has just been one giant fact check right that is almost mind blowing in in the amount of lies and distortions coming out but tell me what you saw
0: okay I feel like I have PTSD from all of my reporting on, on these people, but I'm going to bring it to you here because that's what that's what we do here at Inside the Hive. So, yeah. Explore a your of feelings. Things, a couple of things. When I was reporting my book about the Trump kids, a bunch of people told me at the time that pre- Donald Trump, before he was President Trump, barely knew who Lara Trump was, his daughter-in-law who's married to Eric. Yeah. until the campaign because he started watching her on Fox News. Like, he wouldn't necessarily even remember her name all the time. But when he started seeing her on Fox News and how telegenic she is and how effective she was as a surrogate for him in that medium, he actually started realizing that she was part of his family and married to his youngest, or his second youngest son. And uh, the, that nugget of reporting has come back to me a bunch of times as I've watched the RNC this week, because you saw his adult children use this moment to sort of like prove their love to their father. And it's such a bizarre thing, particularly as you watched uh, the Biden family speak about their grandfather. The Biden family speaking about their grandfather and their father last week felt like, an actual family where they were recounting what it's like to have Joe Biden as their father and as their grandfather. The grandchildren were talking about what what kind of ice cream he likes and how he eats ice cream out of the freezer and how he calls them almost every day. And it felt like how I would speak about my grandparents, probably. And the Trump family recalled no such memories of of right. family togetherness and that's largely because because there was not a lot of family togetherness, uh, but it also speaks to the kind of man that Donald Trump wants, uh, that Donald Trump is, and the kind of uh, children that he wants. He wants children who will be loyal foot soldiers to him, who will praise him, who will speak directly to him and say, "Daddy, I love you. You're the best father. You're the best president in the world." That's just it's not how you speak to your parents. It's not how you show them that you love them, but it felt like the exact way that that family operates is that they need to bow down to their king, and they are constantly in fear that he will leave them if he doesn't. I mean, I, so much of their psychology has to do with the fact that, at least for the three eldest children, that that their father did leave them for another woman when they were 12, 9, and 6 or whatever the ages were or something like that. And in different ways that's manifested for them as adults. Uh, but primarily it has been, I, I think, a feeling that if they are not on their father's train that he will leave them behind. And that sort of constant parental fear that they will be abandoned by their parent has, has guided a lot of their adult decisions And uh, to see that play out on national television on such a great stage just felt really sad to me. And there was a lot of talk about um, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is Don Jr.'s girlfriend, and about Don Jr. and his eyes. And it's a funny thing when the first night of the Republican National Convention, the term that is trending is cocaine or cocaine eyes. I mean, say what you will. I have no idea what happened before. I've tried to report it out. No one wants to talk to me about it. Um, <laughs> but but it just is not a good look. It's it's funny. People also talk about um, this this power struggle within the family of who's going to be the heir of the Republican Party. Is it going to be Don Jr. who's become this sort of populist hunting? Get your Annie, Get your gun voice in the Republican Party or Ivanka Trump, who's become princess of the universe in her own mind. And it, the way I I know it from my reporting is there's actually not a power struggle between the two of them. They kind of don't really interact that much. Um, they just serve very different purposes. I don't believe that Ivanka Trump wants to be president. I think she wants to be princess. And I think Don Jr. has actual political ambitions. I think that if Ivanka Trump, if you were to tell her tomorrow that she could be head of like the World Bank or the IMF or a UN ambassador who could go on stage with Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, like that's what she wants, right? I don't think she like actually wants to be in the White House grinding it out every day. Don Jr. wants Wants that, so I don't. I don't actually think that there's this power struggle between the siblings. I think they just want. They're on very different tracks, but.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's interesting what you're saying there. I see Don Jr. has got this ambition, and he likes to be a a speaker and a media figure. What he lacks that Donald Trump has that defines everything that you're talking about is the essential narcissism. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that the kids are all like this is because he's a narcissist and he sees everybody around him as an extension of himself. And mm. to the degree that they benefit and underline and italicize his narcissistic tendencies is the degree to which he likes them, quote unquote. Mm. Right? He everybody serves a use. They do not have any sort of and that goes for the American people we're we're seeing. That goes for you know, if you're not a voter if you're if you're not compelled by his celebrity and his bellicose propaganda then he has no interest in you okay that's the you know the psychology of this narcissism is defining everything that's why i don't see don jr he could take up all the kind of like whatever the platform is of the of the trump republican party at this point it's hard even hard to know right it's just like primary colored, you know, brittle, um, iconography of flags and eagles and, you know, s- vaguely something about taxes in China, but no, you know, but we don't actually do anything about it. And when we do cut taxes, it doesn't actually have any benefit for the people on the ground that are actually, you know, supposedly his working class base. It's all just a fraud and I don't think it's a fraud that Don Jr. will ever be able to prop up on his own mm. is my is my read on it. Mm. I really do think that once Trump uh, is seen to have been a loser, the loser that he's desperate not to be, that a lot of the fiction that we've seen this week will not be supportable any longer because it's a faith-based concept of this self-propelling celebrity winner thing. You know, it's about power. And once the power is gone, once he's a loser, I think a lot of these other people are going to fall down on their face and not be able to take up the mantle. Maybe that's being optimistic. You know me. But uh anyway. So I'm gonna come
0: in as I'm gonna come in as a dark cloud and I'm really sorry. Don't I don't want to crush you, but I'm gonna crush Please you. Please do, yeah. I'm no. gonna do it. <laughs> I'm already I... crushed. <laughs> I am scared he's not going to be a loser. I feel like until May of this year, I was like, I would say 100% sure he was going to win re-election. Between May and Monday of this week, I felt like, oh, maybe maybe Joe Biden's going to do this. It feels crazy to think about re-electing President Trump right now. And now... Today, as I talk to you, I am worried that this is going to be so much closer than you think. Right. Like, this is going to be really close. And I genuinely don't know which, which way this is going to go. No one does. There are people who will tell you that they do. And maybe they maybe they do. I really don't know how this is going to end up. But I do have a, a really strong feeling that this is going to be much closer than you want it to be that it's going to be much closer than the polls tell you it's going to be. And there is a real part of this country that wants to reelect this president. And we don't hear from them. We talked about this last week. We don't hear from them because most reporters are not there and because people don't trust the polls and because people are embarrassed to admit that they would want to vote for this president again. But it's happening And to ignore it is to make the same mistake that people made in 2016. And so I would just say it's real that we can't forget that just because people personally support Joe Biden and can't imagine who would vote for Donald Trump, that there aren't people who would vote for him. Well,
1: and I I agree with you, and I do think it will be a nail-biter. There's no getting around it. You know, the, that's how these—that's how it's worked for the last many election cycles. I mean, even when it was Romney versus Obama, it, people were biting their nails up to mm-hmm. the last minute. It wasn't clear. It's not going to be that clear. But uh, and and by the way, uh, this morning, um, Jonathan Chade of New York Magazine uh, tweeted out uh, that um, support for Black Lives Matter in Wisconsin has gone from plus twenty-five to plus zero—that it had oh, wow. evaporated. And, you know, we're watching what's going on in Kenosha this week, Um, all kinds of horrible violence, there's unrest, and that's happening simultaneously to this Republican National Convention where they're saying, this is Joe Biden's America, it's absurd on its face, (laughs) you know. Tell us why that's absurd. Because it's sort of as, as, uh, as the Times put it today, you know, uh, the GOP is promising to uh, or or it's saying we're gonna fix all of this but oh by the way, there's this problem you're actually in charge right now. And you know the animating uh, anger and unrest uh, is has been uh, is connected to Donald Trump's presidency. of course he has inflamed this divide. He has, consciously ignored the cries of people who were complaining about, uh, you know, police brutality and and these senseless murders. So he's inflaming it and then saying that he's going to be the solution to it. Now, you know, the degree to which – and this is where uh, it's up to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to counter-program that. You know, I'm sitting here today – And I was thinking when I was reading this about support for BLM in Wisconsin, uh, you know, Kamala Harris needs to go to Kenosha. Mm. She needs to do a press conference and describe what is on the Biden-Harris platform that is going to fix this Mm. and to show what leadership is, that you can go there and call for peace, ask questions, talk to people on the ground, connect, and make it better, right? Right and i don't see them doing that i hope they do something like that but there is a sense that um we need them to step up and counter program
0: well there's a there's a leadership void right it's so clear and the, the notion that donald trump is going to save us from donald trump's america is kind of a crazy thing
1: it's, it's asinine
0: yeah but if you if you want to you can step up and fill that leadership void it's the the gap is so wide that all you have to do is like just show up. And so there's an opportunity for for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to just show up. I don't know if they will. Um I don't I I just they haven't risen to meet a moment like this outside of the DNC. I would be very curious to see if they take the opportunity to to meet this moment or if they want to let President Trump just seem like an empty right. absent leader this is inside the hive hi it's Radhika jones editor-in-chief of vanity fair if you love digging into the week's political headlines subscribe to vanity fair our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of congress Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. You know, the other thing that stuck out to me from this convention is the blatant disregard for the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and nothing showed that to me more than everyone sitting in the rose garden, not distance and not wearing masks together. And the reason why that actually happened in practice is because the white house actually has quite a robust testing system. And then they were able to test all these people, which I think is a terrible thing to rely on for two reasons. The first reason is either you are in the audience watching this on television and you know that the White House has a robust testing operation and that's why they were able to sit so close together in the Rose Garden without masks. And you are angry about that fact. I am angry about that fact because I would love to have access to that kind of robust testing operation. I would love to be able to interview people in person. I would love to get on a plane to see my family. I would love to be able to go to the doctor's office without worrying if i'm going to get sick and if if testing if rapid testing were easy and widespread and available to me i would be able to do all of those things that are way more important than going to see a live speech that could have been recorded in a safe distanced way so either you know that the testing operation is there and you're mad about it or you don't know that the testing operation is there and you think it's okay to behave in that manner where you're just with a huge group of people without masks, without knowing who's infected. And both of those things are incredibly maddening, incredibly dangerous, and just really hammer home how out of touch this RNC feels to most of Americans who are actually feeling uh, the effects of a pandemic in a way that people in this convention are not.
1: this is the, the meat, the reason the Kenosha unrest uh, simultaneously to the convention is complicated is that you know they want the coronavirus as a narrative to disappear this week it's perfect for them to talk about law and order and we had larry kudlow uh you know at the convention talking about the coronaviruses in past tense this mm. week right it's all part of a narrative to make it look like it's in the rear view it's not in the present. You don't have to worry about it. We're pretending it doesn't exist. We're fist bumping after our speeches. You know, this is like exactly uh, you know, in many ways, people have been asking, well, are they going to address this unrest or they got in, in many ways, this what's going on in Wisconsin has has served you know, their narrative interests to make it all disappear.
0: Of course. I mean, but but here's the reality: you can't disappear something that is keeping your children home from school. You can't disappear something that has closed the factory that you work in, or the train that you ride to work on, or the grocery store that's now requiring you to wait outside for 45 minutes because there are only 20 people allowed in the store at the same time. Like, you can't just pretend this doesn't happen because for everyone in this country, this is real, and the effects are present in our hourly are hourly comings and goings. It's not yeah. like for, for a large part of this country, particularly white people in this country, you could tune out the social unrest, right? Like unless unless you are participating in a protest or they're happening outside of your window or they are happening in your streets, which for most people, they're not right now, then you can tune that out. And so to, to focus on something that is so not immediate when there is something that is so immediate just feels like, Don't believe your eyes and ears and experiences. Believe this crazy delusional world that we're presenting you right here that has no connection to your life.
1: And So there's my question for you. Do you think this was an effective convention? I mean, we can't know whether there'll be a bounce, you know, the ratings are roughly in parity with the DNCs. It's not like that's a real measure of anything, you know. But do you think that it's doing anything other than just giving comfort to the base?
0: No. But but I also think that conventions are dumb. And yeah. most people in this world do not watch them. The vast majority of this country is not watching either of these conventions. There will be a slight bounce like there was for Biden-Harris last week. And then those bounces get zeroed out until there's a debate and then they get zeroed out until there's another debate and so these moments don't actually matter there are a lot of money there are a lot of twitter chatter there are a lot of pomp and circumstances for something that actually has no no bearing on what happens at the polls in november i think that this will be i mean i think that the the era of in-person conventions is definitely over i don't know that there will be a convention like this even digitally ever again. They're just, it's just stupid. It just feels like there's really no net outcome for the actual campaign and process of democracy. So even if this message is effective for his base, which maybe it is, it does nothing to convert new voters. I don't think because most people aren't watching it.
1: Yeah. Well, they're getting the, the, you know, short clips after the fact, I mean, and frankly, uh, you Know a lot of us are because uh, it's as it has been mentioned many times this week, it's painful to watch these things. Yeah, it, it's horrible to watch Mike Pence, this sort of like bloodless whitewasher, just sit up there and spout these earnest lies, uh, with these flags behind him, is nauseating, frankly, and um. So you know who's watching this, and, ha- and it feels good to them, right? It can only be the culty true believers. But those really. those
0: those true believers elected a president last time around, and so
1: right by seventy thousand votes in these certain states. I mean that, and that's and and you know that's why Wisconsin and these states that we need to be paying attention to right now are, uh, you know they're at the center of the conversation in a way that could break bad for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris if they don't address it and show leadership because it's so easy for the Trump administration to not do anything and just watch it unfold and scream law and order the whole time, right? And, you know, trot out these this couple from Missouri and the Tweedledum and Tweedledee, like with their, you know, these idiot suburbanites with their rifles. I mean as I mean, the fact that they rolled them out—that just shows the—they put them in the convention. It just shows that they—they're so brazen, right? And they don't have to do anything. They all they have to do is make media noise and outrage the media and trigger everybody, and that's their effort. It right?
0: works. You're <laughs> triggered, and also, <laughs> I mean, Joe, you're triggered by it, and it worked, and. Yeah. The th- my my issue with that was not um, like of course they did that that's straight out of their playbook and those people speak to other people in this space and so I totally understand why they were there the problem that I had with it as a as a political tool was that they had this couple in a very fancy wood paneled room in like a suit and a dressy outfit on the woman. And it just felt like if you're going to try and push this populist message of like, don't take our guns, don't make them look like they're going to the country club. That just optically felt like the wrong choice there.
1: Well, but this goes back to something you hear now and then, which is that, um, and it's an important point. We often think of the white working class as the core of the Trump support. But in fact, it's them. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a much wealthier suburban uh, group who are supporting him. And, uh, you know, you'd think that this would be a, um, an educated class that could discern fact from fiction. But, you know, people believe what they want to believe.
2: This is Inside the Hive.
1: So let's talk for a moment about how Vanity Fair magazine – is addressing what's going on um, today because you and I are talking about it for this podcast and keeping people informed about what's going on and giving them different perspectives. But uh, the magazine this month has produced really what I think will be a historic issue of Vanity Fair that people will look back on. It's a milestone issue. It is one that was guest edited by ta Coates. Uh, the author and, and, and critic and journalist addressing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, everything that's happened this summer in the wake of the George Floyd protests, what the ramifications of it are. And it's really a kind of an, an incredibly gorgeous um, issue.
0: There's a gorgeous, gorgeous portrait of Breonna Taylor on the cover. It really feels like... Such an important marker of the moment that we're in, and I could not agree with you more. That it feels historic, and it feels timeless, and it feels like such a statement. And I feel very proud to work at Vanity Fair, always, but I feel particularly proud this week, as you said. It was it was guest edited by Tana Coates, and you got to talk to him. I guess he's technically our boss for the week. So you got boss. to talk to the boss <laughs> and um, tell us tell us a little bit about what you guys got to, well, to talk about.
1: You know, it this is a great time for this issue to have arrived because it really underlines what we should be thinking about when we're looking at what's going on in Kenosha. And around the country and the reaction to it, LeBron James, you know, what's happening with the NBA, you know, a reminder that even in this news cycle world, the Trump news cycle world, in which last week it seems like five years ago already, things change so quickly. Right. But everything that happened this summer with the George Floyd protests is a it's an ongoing story. It is a story that is not going anywhere and it has incredible political power that could change the dynamics of this country politically one way or the other. And at the – but at the core of it is a a vision of what justice means in this country and what is the identity of this country and what does it mean that everybody – that we live in 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 a society of equality. So this issue is a kind of a celebration and a memorialization of these ideas and these values, and it's really kind of got all this kind of beautiful, groundbreaking uh, journalism in it. There's an oral history of the days, uh, first days of the protests, with all kinds of amazing voices in it. I just want to point out, as before, we segue into this conversation I had with Tanahasi. He uh, was assigned by Vanity Fair to go to Louisville, Kentucky uh, in the wake, uh, you know, when there were protests around the Breonna Taylor uh, killing uh, by police officers there. And he didn't know what was going to come out of his reporting, but he ended up meeting her mother mm. and sitting down with her. And hearing her voice, decided and realized that the piece that he had to write was... Uh, could not be told any better than just her voice. Mm. And he does a kind of, you know, as told to oral history of her life and with her daughter and humanizes her in a way that, you know, I read it yesterday before I was going to interview him. And uh, I haven't cried reading a piece of journalism in a while. But I did, and it was involuntary, and I was even surprised by it. But it was really, really powerful, and it just was yet again a reminder of what great journalism can do, mm. um, why what we're doing can be important, and why, uh, you know, when two people like Radhika Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates come together to with a big staff like the we, one we have and bring in you know, new writers and new thoughts and with a kind of mission um, that great things can happen. And that's something we can think about more largely politically right now.
0: I couldn't agree more. You and I talked about this yesterday, actually, and um, I think we think about this all the time, but oftentimes when you're set out to do a profile, um you'll hear someone who you're writing about and you'll say, oh, this person can talk about themselves way better than I could talk about them. But you have to just try because that's the job. And you are the, probably the only one who knows that they're better at what they're doing than, than you will be in capturing them. And so only you are slightly disappointed when you know that it's not quite as good as, as it would have been if you just kept something in their words. And I think it's a real bold choice to have, kept this in her words, but I think it was 100% the right choice. And particularly in this moment when um, I think it's just so important to have everyone speak for themselves and let the power of their own words be heard and the, the different perspectives on, on what we're seeing is just so incredibly valuable to hear people in their own voices and words. I think that that is something that we should carry through into the rest of this election cycle is like we should hear people who we don't normally hear in their own words, whether that is BIPOC people who we have not given the platforms to before, um, whether that is turning over a magazine to a different voice, whether that is listening to Trump voters in the middle of the country uh, and, and actually hearing, what they have to say and why they're supporting the president for the second time or newly supporting him. And I think that we just have to be more open to hearing people in their own experiences and getting uncomfortable and getting into other people's heads and feeling at least sympathy for people, if not empathy. And that's just a message that I would like to carry through in into the rest of this election season and, and going beyond that.
1: That was really beautifully put. And I think the way in which journalism can be empathetic is something we don't uh, talk about enough. And that's something that uh, the core vision of, I think, what Tana Hase Coates brought to Vanity Fair for this special issue is exactly that mm. empathy and empathy in journalism. So let's listen now uh, to my conversation with him. Uh, which for you journalism nerds is uh, also going to be nice to hear too because we get into the sausage making of uh, of making a magazine. So um, let's listen now. ta Coats, Coates, welcome to Inside the Hive. We're very proud to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today about the September issue of Vanity Fair, which you guest edited. Now, a lot of people don't know exactly what that means and it can mean different things, but that means basically you uh, took over the driver's seat and you had your way with the machinery uh, behind Vanity Fair, this great American magazine. Tell me like how this came together. What was the genesis of you coming into, into this uh, issue?
2: You know, the better way I would actually think about it, is like if, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, when you got your driving permit, you were in the driver's seat, but the person that was teaching you how to drive (laughs) <laughs> had a steering wheel on their side too, and they could take control whenever they needed to. And was that Radika Jones? And that was Radika. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I love that image.
1: I love that image.
2: So, so, so that, that, that that was Radika. Um, you know, it came about because we had been talking about another story uh, that did not uh, quite come together, and we were just trying to figure out what what we should do. You know, yeah. um, and I think I was actually in conversation with Claire. Uh, and Claire was like, "Well, what do you think about the idea of guest editing?" And that may have come from Medika originally. I'm not yeah. sure.
1: Claire Haworth, um, uh, who's one of the editors at Vanity Fair.
2: Exactly, exactly, exactly. Right. And I mean, who would not want to guest edit Vanity Fair? <laughs> yeah, you know. Um. So, you know, I, I've I've been you know reading the magazine at least for as long as you know, a period of time, and I've you know been in journalism, uh, so you know, almost 25 years now. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I came up in a way where that was what we all ascribed to. This was a, a different era in the 90s in terms of where magazines were. Right. Uh, both as products and, and just, you know, financially and every, everything. Yeah. And so um, it, it was kind of, for me, like the fulfillment of a dream. I could never imagine, you know, being able to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's such a interesting time for you to have come into the mix. You know, Radhika Jones has obviously sort of shifted the – the kind of focus and tone of the magazine over the last year to kind of be more diverse into who was going to be on the cover and in the in the magazine, and you know uh, we're in this interesting you know inflection point. That's a word that's getting thrown around a lot nowadays, and we hope it's a bigger one in November. But uh, you know the the inflection point at hand was the George Floyd murder and protests and the Black Lives Matter. Uh, protests starting in in May that went into June and and beyond. Tell me like, um, you know, when you're beginning to think about taking over a whole magazine, you've got all kinds of possibilities. And in many ways, this issue breaks many molds and does a lot of Kind of um, beautiful, old-fashioned magazine things that had not been in vogue in, in Vanity Fair recently, like poetry. There's an oral history. The centerpiece of the thing is this beautiful oral history of the protest movement and how, you know, almost day by day, what happened. You know, did Bridika basically? It seems like she gave you a lot of freedom that uh, to kind of break, you know, the mold a little
2: bit. You know, she did, but, you know, I, I, I got to, and, and this is not false modesty. Like, I, I I think I need to be clear here. Um, I think both Radika and Claire, when we talked about this, and my editor, Chris Jackson, I think they were looking for something that would do exactly that because, you know, this is the time. Yeah. Um, there's a lot in this issue that I can't even claim, you know, uh, credit for. Uh, The, 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 the uh, poetry that you're talking about, it's kind of this epic poem by, by, uh, Kiese Lehman. I mean, this was, you know, uh, Claire, you know, was all already in contact with him, uh, for writing for the magazine, jesmine you know, who has a, just a wonderful, wonderful piece for the, for the magazine already had a, you know, a, a relationship with, with the magazine, you know, the whole front of the book stuff, which is just, you know, absolutely beautiful, you know? And so it really was a, it was very much a partnership, you know what I mean? It really, you know, was a situation where, um, there were things that were already existing or ideas that they were already uh, already existing, or even, a, a, a you know, an idea of what this should be that was there that just, you know, really, really well matched. Yeah. Know, like what
1: to do. Yeah. Well, it's almost like the magazine and you and all the pieces met their moment. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. um, just to give people who are listening to this an idea of what they might find, maybe they don't have the print magazine in their hand, although a lot of it's online. Uh, you know, there's, uh, this oral history I mentioned, which has got incredible uh, voices in it from, you know, the the mayor um, of Washington, D.C., to, uh, you know, Jesse Jackson, to Mitt Romney. This is, you know, yeah. a wide variety of voices are in there. Um, but the cover is this incredibly beautiful painting uh, by the pa- painter Amy Sherald of, of Breonna Taylor. Right. Mm-hmm. And you... Um, interviewed uh her mother and there's a kind of as told to you know profile of her uh told all in her own voice and i guess i just say this i read it this afternoon and i cried i mean i just I was so incredible i didn't expect that to happen either i was like I sh- i'm gonna read this and uh, let's, let me get, get to the end of it and find right. out what I'll find out. But I was right. so moved by it. And, and I had learned that you originally, that wasn't your original idea to do it that way. Tell me about, you know, the experience of interviewing her and how you decided to kind of present it that way.
2: I mean, I, I, I went down to Louisville, uh, you know, to do the normal job of reporting. And I was frankly so moved by what I saw, you know, by, by the protests um, that I was already you know, just trying to figure out, how, how would I capture this? And you know, there's, there's, there's this thing when you've been writing in a certain way or kind of on a certain beat or saying certain things where I think regardless of whether um, it would be good for people to hear it again, I think you really, really risk um, saying things with the power that they need to be said if you keep doing them the same way. Um, in other words, the moment it becomes easy for you and, you know, the moment that you're not challenging yourself and you feel like, you know, what I mean, you're given a speech that you've given a thousand times, um, you're in trouble. And if you're in trouble, the reader's in trouble. Yeah. Um, and so I just, um, I felt really strongly that I had to do something different that really captured the energy of what I was seeing. And I never quite figured that out. But what I did do is I got, got the opportunity just, you know, the first time for only about 20 or 30 minutes to talk to Tamika Palmer, uh, Brianna's mother. That's right. And actually, Joe, the, the first thing, the first piece in, in, in that essay where she talks about finding out what, what, what happened uh, to Brianna or in that memoir, she said. say, um, that was in that very first interview. Mm-hmm. And when I heard her narrate when I heard her talk about it, it was just so crystal clear to me and so alive and so just... Filled with like gripping detail that I, I just felt like I, I'm not I'm not going to write better than this woman is talking right now. Right, I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. And so uh, my notion was, you know, it's like you find somebody doing it better than you, you know what I mean. Yeah. You can do it. You know, you 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 try to tee them up and get get them in. And so I called her probably like a week or two it later after I you know read through the transcript and I said, this is what I'm thinking. Would you consider doing this? Yeah. Um, and she was totally up for it. And, I, you know, as, as you can imagine, being interviewed four different times for an hour, um, it's not the most fun thing. No. You know, about your daughter who's been killed. That's not fun. No, it could be.
1: Um, in this case, I can imagine it would be pretty emotionally grueling.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: But your decision to do that was so interesting. It reminded me, you know, I love oral history as a form. I think about Studs Turkle and and some mm-hmm. of the, you know, um, real pioneers of the form but like uh it gave her agency to her voice and agency Mm -hmm. for her to the story it -hmm. gave it to her and and I could tell you know you know the well when well done uh you know they have an organic feel to them even though I know they're shaped by you know to some degree by editors but the details inside of it about her you know, playing double dutch with her daughter, yeah, and yeah. you know, just the details of, of like how you had to be good at that and the things that you oh, had to be aware man. of. It just brought you into the human details, the specific human details of this woman. Right. You know, we hear her name all day long on Twitter or social media, and it has a kind of like symbolic, you know, um, meaning. But when you right. go into the details of this life of this woman who, you know, had a is into classic cars and knew how to ride a motorcycle and, yes, yeah. you know, it just breaks yeah. your heart, um, on a new level. And in a way you need your heart broken so you can understand what's you going do. on.
2: You know, you can I, look, I, I understand, you know, all of the sloganeering and, and everything. And, you know, you, you as a journalist, I, I know you're, you're obviously very familiar with this. Um, our job is at least in the kind of journalism we do, um, to make sure that people do not forget the human cost. Um, when Tamika Palmer thinks about uh, her daughter, she doesn't think about a slogan. Um, she doesn't think about a bill that she wants passed in, in her name. She thinks about all of the little small things. She thinks about, you know, how she was part of a motorcycle club. And then she taught Tamika. Mika think she taught, taught Rihanna how to ride. She thinks about the cars that she loves. She thinks about her making chili. You know, she thinks about her singing, you know, at Christmas time, how she loved to have, you know, family gatherings. And you got to get that, all of that detail in there yeah. before somebody can really get the loss. Because there's a danger of kind of just you know, letting this stuff just disappear into a melange, you know, and and you just don't, I mean, you you just don't want that, you know, you just don't want that. Right.
1: Well, it's, it's one of the most powerful pieces in this issue. And it's so, uh, it really is a, in many ways, a a classic piece of journalism. And I think um, that we'll be reading it for a long time. And and the same goes for the oral history in here, Uh, you know, Mm. titled The Great Fire, you know, this is, uh, I was involved in this, um, and John Homans our the late yeah. John Homans, uh, yeah. had edited this and just to, uh, throw this out there, um, uh, to give him some, uh, his due, uh, you know, mm-hmm. about a, a year and a half ago, he was like, we were talking about books, uh, that we were reading and he suggested one that I read and I did read it and it was your book, The Beautiful Struggle. Um, and he, really? yeah, he had been a fan of that book, and he thought it was really beautiful, and told me to read it, and I did. Um, That's wild. That's a deep cut. That's my first book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, deep cut, man. And he basically, yeah. like you know, he cared about this piece, and he it was the last he major did. piece that he worked on at this magazine before his yeah. untimely um, death a few weeks ago. But um,
2: yeah, I, I, Joe, and I'm, 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 I'm sorry for Vanity Fair's loss. I'm sorry for all of our, our, our losses as a, um, you know, as, as journalists. It's yeah. funny because. The brief, you know, uh, intersection that we had was uh, my, my mentor David Carr, who, who also passed. He was my first editor. Right. I knew him. Um, knew
1: him well. Yeah.
2: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I want to say John edited him at New York. Uh, you know, I might not quite have he it had, Yeah, he, he did absolutely it. did. Yep. Okay, okay, okay. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And so it was just something. Even on and I didn't know John was sick at that time, but to be on that Zoom. And to be there and, 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 you know, have that conversation with him uh, about what the oral history would be, how, you know, what its shape was. You know, he had the whole vibe of an old school editor,
1: man. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's such an honor that he, you know, for his last project to be something so meaningful, I think, uh, well, brings me some sense of, you know, comfort about uh, what his legacy is. because. Uh, not only do I know I he believed in it, but he did such a masterful job of putting it together. with was so much material. I mean, many interviews were done with some really fantastic people, and um, who had amazing insights. I mean, any one of these transcripts, by the way, you know, I'm thinking now of Sherilyn Eiffel uh, of the Legal Defense Fund, just an incredibly um, brilliant, eloquent person, and uh, you know, her transcript by itself could have been a an interview. But, you know, he took all of these pieces and put them together. And I remember uh, in the creation of this, uh, you, he had had a meeting with you and they talked about, let's talk about the timeline. It's going to be from May 25th to around June 5th, I think it was, uh, you know, from the time of, of George Floyd's death until they painted Black Lives Matters uh, on, on the streets in Washington. And uh, it was a kind of, um, uh, you had written up or somebody had written based on your guidance, like uh, what the issues that you wanted to kind of focus on. And I kept thinking as I was going through it, I wonder what um Ta-Nehisi's own experience was of these times. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was your first, when did the George Floyd event come across your transom and where were you and what, how did that strike you?
2: You know, um, I, I, before we get to that, I, I, I'd like to say uh, one of the best things about that oral history is that like we got to police officers, like we, we really had a well-rounded, you know, mm-hmm. uh, picture. Yeah. You know, because um, I think when you're doing the history, you need that. You know what I mean? Even yeah. if, you know, whatever my politics are, you know, I, me not necessarily being in sympathy with everyone. I mean, one of the things I, you know, I learned right early on as a, as a, as a reporter is you talk to people you disagree with, even when you're going to say you're going to disagree with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so even if that wasn't the, 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 uh, the energy, of the issue, I just thought, you know, we had a very, very well-rounded picture. Um, in that oral history. So I thank you guys. It's was, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, you know, I, I think I found out like everybody else, you know, I saw, you know, watching on TV. Um, as I say, you know, in, in the publishers letter, I, I, ne- I never watched the whole
1: video. Right.
2: Um, but there was a moment when it occurred to me that this was going to be big. And that was, there was a day, maybe three or four. We have this in the oral history, maybe three or four days after George Floyd had been killed. And they hold this big press conference. Um, and it looks like they're going to do something, like they're going to announce charges or something like that. But they don't. And everybody's on edge. And they just say, you know, can we have you know, we're, we're pleading for more patience. And I was watching, I thinking, you, you guys don't realize you're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> like you're asking for something that, that you don't have. And then the D.A. at the time, the guy who was prosecuting the case right. comes up and he says, you know, listen, uh, there's some evidence that this might have been justified. And our wife said, listen, if, if it's legal to torture somebody to death on a public street, if there are reasons to justify that, then yeah. there, there's no law. There's no law at all. Right. You know, um, that's right. I don't care if a guy's a serial killer. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm trying to think of what would justify the state doing that, and I, and I just can't think of anything. And um, and then that night they burnt down a precinct. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, and and it, you know it spread. So.
1: Yeah. Well, that know. was a real and that moment came up in in several of my conversations as being you know again a, a, that was a turning point. That was it was unbelievable and 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 it spoke to so much of the history uh, leading up to this moment. You know, how many times have people heard that before as a, you know, a kind of to soften uh, the, the public image of what happened so that the police department can, you know, get off the hook, right? Right, And right. so just the rage there that was under the surface of this and you had like the Amada Arbery thing having happened only two months prior. I mean, there was just so much raw stuff i mean but i did i have to say i mean one of the things that i kept talking about with people in the oral history was you know when i first saw it i don't don't think i watched the whole thing at first and uh you know you saw clips of it across social media but i thought well this is horrible and probably in two weeks it'll disappear out of the headlines right you just have that kind of depressed thought and it didn't happen this time and, of course, what unfolded has become uh, this political force in the country that we're dealing with up to the minute that you and I are talking. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got what's going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it's like, uh, you know, happening again. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I wanted to sort of ask you about that in relation to what we're seeing, you know, on the political level. You know, politics – is a very kind of like uh, un uh, imperfect expression uh, of what is going on on the street level and the emotions that you and I have been talking about. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm just curious, like, um, you know, were you uh, – are you comfortable talking a little bit about what your politics have been up to, to this point? Like we had a Democratic nominating – uh, you know, process right. in the spring. Some people were into the Bernie side and some people were more centrist, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like, uh, what, what's what been your own kind of experience of the, of this presidential election?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think my politics are that hard to guess. You know, I was somewhere between uh Brady and, and Warren and, you know, um, yeah. during the primary. Um, and, 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 you know, some of that comes through, you know, in, in the letter, um, I think, in this moment, um, you know, and again, this is what I argue. About. I, I think there's a, a lot of attention paid to uh, whether the young people who are out in the street are, are, are going to vote. Right. Um, obviously, I think voting is really important. Um, I think uh, without whatever you know progress that you know we hope for going forward uh, without Trump being removed, um, I don't don't think it's going to be possible. Uh, you know, if the fight, in other words, the fight that we want to have, um, I don't think it's possible, you know, uh, uh, like Trump being removed is a prerequisite to that. I I mean that in the most direct and and, and literal sense, you know, whatever you think of Joe Biden, whatever you think of, of Kamala Harris, uh, it's clear that if you had a different attorney general, even what we're seeing in Kenosha right now would be going differently. Yeah. Um, There's a big difference between what we're seeing right now from the federal government and, say, Eric Holder going down uh, to to Ferguson and commissioning a report that ultimately, you know, showed that the police department was, you know, uh, basically using uh, uh, the black community as a source of, you know, a a kind of municipal slush fund through, you know, these fines and these arrests and that sort of thing. So you you can't even get there, you know what I mean, without the vote. But, But having said that. You know, I think it's really, really important that people regard voting as uh, the beginning um, and not the end of their politics. That's right. You know, that's really, really important. And so um, that's probably where I am right now. It's one of the reasons why I've been very, you know, heartened to see uh, so many people, you know, out in the streets not letting this die. Yeah. This is Inside the Hive.
1: Well, I have to say that the uh, my mind, I had such intense cognitive dissonance this week watching uh, the Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron speaking at the Trump convention. Yeah. I yeah. mean, here's the guy who's supposed to be investigating the Breonna Taylor murder.
2: Yeah.
1: And he's out here, uh, and it's very fascinating. I mean, he's trying to make a case that we've heard before, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, him being a Trump Republican uh, is an expression of his own independence, right? That there's diversity right. in the of thought in the black community. Right. And, um, you know, but, <laughs> but, 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 right? What, I mean, when you see that from the point of view of an African-American man who's sympathetic to Black Lives Matter and you've and you're trying to aim a light on it and and understand it. what goes through your mind when when you are, are watching him?
2: Um I wish I could tell you I was surprised. Yeah. Uh I, I just I wish I could tell you I was surprised. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, I you know, as much as and I've said this before, and I really really hate saying this, but as much as um, I applaud the protest movement, as much as I applaud the courage of Rihanna's mother, um, I would be shocked if the powers that be hold those officers responsible. Right, I'd be I'd be surprised. I'd be really 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 surprised. Yeah, I guess I just
1: I have been. And maybe it's just like a parlor game in my mind, but I'm trying to put myself into the head of Daniel Cameron. Like, it's Shakespearean, right? I mean, what – how could he look at this and then get on a stage to defend and advocate for Donald Trump whose racial, you know, animus is transparent and explicit – you know yeah so you know i am just have been trying to wrap my mind around it and i don't know you know um it's in in some ways in this current you know world that we're living in i in the one that i I don't feel like i have the credibility to criticize him you know i'm like who am i to say right if he says there's you know he's Uh, Trying to say I am also black and Joe Biden said, you know, if you vote for Biden, quote, you ain't black. Right. So that was a gaffe. Right. Right. Um, And yet, uh, you know, is it is Daniel Cameron purely a cynic?
2: Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm giving up psychoanalyzing. I know. Well,
1: I I, I started to get fascinated with the idea because of. Did you see the Spike Lee, um, you know, movie about the Vietnam guys? The Five Bloods. I
2: haven't seen it yet. No. Oh,
1: okay. Well, it's no. it's really. I mean, it's flawed in many ways, but it's so fascinating because the most compelling character in it is a black Trump voter. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you know, it's. Um, fascinating because, uh, this on the, on the, in the most blunt level, Trump is, you know, people will say that he, that these, that Tim Scott and Daniel Cameron are like cover for him. Right. Uh They're inoculating Uh him against seeming like a pure white party. Right. And he's making these overtures. It's all theater. Right. Right. Um, and so I've just been trying to, because that's been happening this week, it's been on my mind and it's been like a thorn in my brain trying to process it, you know. Um, and maybe it's something that you consider just, um, you know, not worth analyzing, just a sort of curious. Like, no, I don't. I don't. That's not it.
2: I, I, I'm about where you are, though. I don't quite understand it. Yeah, yeah. I really, I don't, I don't know how um, you read what happened to Brianna and you're okay with that. Yeah, it's just and I don't know how um, you don't connect that to the politics, you know, of the exactly. president. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't get it. Um, I don't
1: get it. And so, um, what do you hope that the impact of this issue of Vanity Fair that you just created helped create?
2: That's a great question.
1: Will be, you know. I mean, I could, you know, um, pontificate that from what I hope it will be from my own point of view. But like, you know, as the person who's sort of helped germinate this, I mean, yeah. what do you hope it will be in the in the la- larger scope of things?
2: Yeah. Um, what, what myself and Radika talked about early on was um, as well as Claire and as well as Chris was was the idea that. Whatever we did, it should be something that when people want to understand what was happening in 2020, they go back and look at this. Um, that was the main thing. I mean, I think um, bearing witness. Right. I mean, this is our this is our greatest power. You know, we don't really have the ability to go out and directly lobby or you know go out and really march. Like that's not that's not really what journalists do. But they make sure that the country doesn't forget if they're doing it right. Because yeah. they're doing it right. You know what I mean? They bear witness to what was actually happening, you know, for those who, you know, later on hope to make a, make a better world. And so in my mind, this was very, very future-looking. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted folks to feel like this was not just another, you know, with all due respect to Vanity Fair, given that we were living in inordinate times, um, I really, really wanted this to stand out. You know, in a, in, a, in a particular way, and
1: I think we could do, do too. Yeah. Well, just yesterday we were taping. Uh, you know, for listeners, we're taping on Wednesday, uh, August twenty sixth, and just yesterday, uh, Kamala Harris, the Democratic vice presidential nominee, uh, tweeted out the cover. Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. And what a you know, which is huge. You know. Yeah. Um, and uh kind of a real you know interest a breakthrough uh image, you know, helped this image really break through in a way. And um and god uh, I hope she
2: reads the article on police abolition.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, she reads it. Um and just uh you know, in the article, I mean in the magazine there's also um a conversation with um Amy Sherald who who painted uh mm-hmm. the cover image. Um People may know uh, previously she had painted Michelle Obama. I think that I saw that painting in Washington. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a a gorgeous painting. So like, you know, there's so much special about this issue. I think that it is something that we will definitely look back on as a document of these times. Mm -hmm. And I feel that uh, you really brought um, creativity and kind of um, intellectual and uh you know just a lot of like soul to the magazine in what you helped do here and uh I'm very grateful uh for having to have been a participant uh in this issue. Um so Tanahasi thanks so much uh for coming on inside the hive and uh do you have any last thoughts that you want to uh telegraph? Uh, about this issue that you think? No, I,
2: you know, I, I I would just say, you know, um, I'm I'm going to use you as a stand-in. Um, I, I want to thank the whole staff, uh, and I, and I want to thank you, Joe. Um, that that the oral history is just tremendous. I hope everybody reads it. Um, everybody was creative, professional, agile. Um, we did this without, you know, um, in in these times as they demand, with everybody at a distance. It was just a tremendous experience. It was just a tremendous, the creating, it was just a tremendous, I mean, it was no harder than it had to be, you know, I mean, doing things like this are hard, but it was no harder than, than it had to be. And I just, um, I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: Well, we're glad to have had you here and and as a coworker for this special issue. And um, if you're listening, please seek out this know subscribe to vanity fair and you can get it in the mail then you don't have to go out with your mask if you don't want to um or look online because it's been beautifully presented at VanityFair.com. um thank you again ta-nehisi coats and uh, (laughs) we will uh hopefully uh bring you back here uh at a later date uh and hopefully in more um optimistic
2: times
0: looking forward to it thanks so much thank you man Thank you to my co-host, Joe Hagen. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great Inside the Hive episodes. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you next week.